if you would take out the Word of God and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 27. We're going to continue our study in 1 Samuel, the king we need. Five more chapters, five Sundays in March. I think we'll almost have spent a year, uh, almost a year. We skipped some Sundays in 1 Samuel. We're going to look at chapter 27 through verse 2 of 28 today. I'm going to read verse 9 of chapter 27 to begin our time together. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word. Hear the word of Christ. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man or woman alive. But would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. Oh God, I pray today that you would teach us according to your word by the power of your spirit. God, today as we look at this chapter, that almost seems out of place. Like it doesn't fit in the story of a hero. God, you would cause us to look back to the cross, a story that doesn't seem to fit in the life of a hero. But God, he is our hero whose name is Jesus, who was crucified, who was killed for us, who was raised from the dead, who rules and reigns even now. And may he be the only hero of our story. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Bruce Jenner and Bill Cosby, two names that I thought would never give me the sort of gut-punch, sick feeling that they did. I was watching a documentary on Formula One racing, and I know some of you are saying, Formula One, I thought you were from Tennessee, you're supposed to be watching NASCAR, but... I drifted off into this documentary on race, racing and ended up watching a documentary on Formula One racing. And I'd forgotten that both of these men, Bruce Jenner and Bill Cosby, were at some point involved in racing. Bill Cosby owned a team and Bruce Jenner actually drove a car. And so when their images came up on the screen, it was jarring. Knowing what you know now about these men, it was, it was almost out of place. What in the world are they doing there? Why are they talking about them? And as the footage came up of Bill Cosby with the car he owned, I literally got sick at my stomach. Thinking about all of the graphic details that are coming out about women that have accused him of rape, all of the evidence surrounding him. And, and then Bruce Jenner, they were showing him in a race car and he was doing a, an interview after a race. And then all of the sudden in the documentary, it, it went directly to present day Bruce Jenner, who calls himself Caitlyn Jenner. And there he is on the screen and there were these two images of this man. And looking back on better days, I thought, what if, what if I had known then what I know now. And I'd probably seen that footage as a kid. 
pictures of these two men in that time. And after all, I wanted to live with the Huxtables as a kid. I wanted to live in that house. Bill Cosby was America's dad, and Bruce Jenner was the epitome of the American male. He was this great athlete and, and a race car driver. And now, Bill Cosby sits in jail, still denying the graphic evidence that women have brought forth, that he drugged and he rapes, and Bruce Jenner claims to be a woman. And if we really allowed the Bible to hit us with the graphic details of its truth, if we really came to the Bible and allowed the story to tell itself in graphic detail, and not considering the Bible some sort of nursery rhyme, cartoonish fairy tale, we would be tempted to feel the same way about David as we would feel about these two men as we look back on his story. Think about what we know about David now as we read his story. Think about how his story ended. We, we think about David so far in the book of 1 Samuel, and we have seen this hero who is rising to the occasion. He is God's choice for king. This shepherd boy out in Bethlehem, who is tending sheep, who has fought lions and bears. And he has been brought to the fore of the story as this hero who has been killing Philistines. This mighty warrior. There are songs about him in the land. We've seen him develop a deep friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan. And last week we saw him for the second time show this amazing radical mercy to King Saul. A second time he could have killed him and he shows him mercy. And so far David has in many ways been a defender of women. He is the hero of the day. So as we think about where his story is headed, how does it make you feel about what we're seeing of the hero now? Well, if we'd known then what we know now, but concerning David, we do know now what he didn't know then. And at this point in the story, he so far has been the victim of Saul's injustice. But again, we know what's coming. In chapter 27, God gives us a glimpse of what's coming for David. Notice verse 1, then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day at the hand of Saul. Now that is almost gives us whiplash as we think about it. Think about what David was just saying in chapter 26. The Lord will deliver me. The right hand of the Lord will rescue me. I have been merciful to Saul. God's going to deliver me for doing the right thing. And then almost immediately in verse 1, now I shall perish at the hand of Saul. And we're thinking, where is the dude from last chapter? Where is the hero from chapter 26? And then notice what he says. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. The, the pagan land of the Philistines. They were the logo of the enemies of God. The disgusting Philistines. We've seen David slay the giant. 
the, the, the ugly, disgusting giant who stood up and mocked Israel, mocked David, mocked Saul. We have seen David go to battle with these people, and now he is talking about making his home with the Philistines. Then Saul, David says, will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. It's almost jarring. Last chapter, he's talking about God's right hand will deliver him. And here, he's got to run off to this pagan land to be delivered by God. He says there is nothing better for him. And we're thinking, no, David, God has promised the land to Israel. You are to rule and reign over God's people in the land. You're not to leave the land. What are you thinking? What are you doing, David? But notice the characteristics of David here. And it's the characteristics of everyone who fails to trust God. Notice who is doing the talking here. Notice who is forming the narrative. David. David's talking to himself. David is telling himself what is going to happen. Here, David is not reminding himself of the promises of God. He, he's not saying to himself... God has made me the anointed king of Israel. He will deliver me as he has said before. He, he's not reminding himself of all the ways in which God had delivered him from Saul. All of the ways God had delivered him from the enemies. I mean, he is the one who took down Goliath. He can look back on that day. Remember the promises of God. Remember the deliverance of God. But here he is found talking to himself. And this is exactly what happens in our lives. We begin to form the narrative in our own mind. And we begin to tell ourselves what is going to happen. And we begin to tell ourselves what God has and hasn't done. And before we know it, we're making plans to move away. Before we know it, we are calculating maneuvers to get away from the presence of God. We find ourselves complaining. God has not provided the way I asked him to. And we begin to tell ourselves all of the prayers that I have prayed. And he's still not healed me. I'm still struggling with this thing in my life. I have all, all these prayers that I have prayed for my kids that they would repent and believe the gospel. All of these years, I took them to church. I told them about Jesus, and they've yet to believe in Jesus. And I keep doing it over and over and over, and God's not answering my prayers. Why should I pray? It would be better not to pray. And, and we form that narrative in our head. We talk to ourselves about the worst-case scenario, coronavirus. It's going to get us all. I know it. My kids, they're not safe. They're going to get sick at school. They're going to wreck their car. Our finances, they're going to fall apart. I know my boss doesn't like me. I'm going to go in tomorrow and I may lose my job. And we begin to form all of these stories in our head. But who's doing the talking? We're doing the talking. And before long, we end up moving out of the presence of God, away from God, not wanting to have anything to do with God as we see David doing here. Let's go to the Philistines. 
And yet we are to fight that in our own minds, in our hearts, by reminding ourselves of the promise of God. If you are a Christian here today, God has forgiven you of your sins because you believed in Jesus. And he promises this, that he will raise you from the dead in the same way he raised Jesus from the dead. And he promises you an eternal kingdom where you will have more than you even need. You you think about your needs now. God has promised you everything in Jesus Christ. And so you are to constantly remind yourselves of that. As you look at your bills and maybe the money comes up short, the kingdom of Christ will not come up short. The kingdom of Christ gives me everything that I need. I have a good father who is the father of Jesus who provided for him and he will provide for me. And you tell yourself the story. And how do you know it's true? You remind yourself of the promises of God looking back on the day of deliverance. David could have looked back to slaying the giant. He could have looked back at being delivered from the Philistines, delivered from Saul, delivered from the caves, delivered from uh, time and time again, the enemies of God, but he doesn't do it. Guess what you can do today? You look back on a cross and an empty tomb where you have been delivered from sin and death, and you remind yourself of that. I know, self. Shut up, self. I know, self. God is going to deliver me. God is going to rescue me. This this disease may take over my body and kill me, but Jesus will raise me from the dead. And you tell yourself the story, and as you do, you move to the presence of God. Notice verse 2. So David arose and went over. Now, the way this is described here is we should see David going over to the dark side. He went over. There's a change in location, but it's also a a change in everything for David. He went over. He and 600 men. Now remember, these are the 600 outcasts. This is sort of a ragtag army that David has made in the wilderness, in the caves for himself. And they went to Achish, the son of Maok, the king of Gath. Now we remember, this is Goliath's hometown. He is going to the center of the Philistine power. And then verse 3, David lived with Achish at Gath. And he and his men and every man with his household. Now what we see here is David has aligned his forces with the Philistines. He has made his home with the enemy. And notice, and David with his two wives and Hanoam of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, and Nabal's widow. And we remember the stories around them, and we're, we're still uneasy about that. We're uncomfortable about that, but we're uncomfortable with the whole thing. David has moved his armies, and he has moved his families, and his army's families into the Philistine territory to live with this pagan king. And when it was told to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. And we think, there you go. It worked, David. But again, we're to remember, David was saying, God will deliver me. And here, David has worked his own deliverance, which was not in the plan of God. And then verse 5, then David said to Achash, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of your country towns that I may dwell here. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? David says, I have brought 600 soldiers. 
I have brought their families, their household, probably 3,000 people to the, the, the center of the Philistine power into this city. And he said, we can't dwell here with you. It's not good for the economy. Give us a town on the outskirts that we should go live in. And notice here, David, the way David talks to this pagan king. If I have found favor in your eyes. Notice David refers to himself as his servant. Now think back before. This very king, in just a few chapters earlier, is scared to death of David. He's fighting for Saul. And, and, and the, the Philistine king is in fear of David. And now all of a sudden David thinks he's got to bow before him. He's got to plead for his favor. If you found favor, will you please take care of us, O pagan king? And then verse 6. So that day Achish gave him Ziglag. Therefore Ziglag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And there's an allusion to what's coming for David. David's people and the kings of Judah, which is David's tribe, will live in this place in days to come. But notice verse 7. And the number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now think about this. David's hometown, Bethlehem house of bread, the place where God will provide. And now David has forsaken that promise of the place where he literally lived. And he has been provided a hometown by a pagan king. He has accepted the provision of Achish here. And he has made residence there. And, and if you think about it, think about all of these ragtag warriors who have been living in caves with David. And now all of a sudden they have a home. Now all of a sudden they have a place to sleep. Probably their, their first good night's rest in years here in Ziglag. And yet they've made their home in a pagan land. And we see David is a failed leader. He's a failed leader. We get a glimpse into his failures here. Probably 3,000 Israelites, David has made refugees in a pagan land. And we see his sin doesn't just affect himself, it affects the people of God. And yet this is the man headed to the throne to serve the people of God. And he's not the epitome of the perfect leader we see here. Then notice verse 8. Now David and his men went up and made raids against Geshurites, the Gizarites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And we stop here and we go, oh, that's what he was doing. He, David is sort of going behind in, enemy lines as this spy warrior. And he's going to go behind enemy lines. Nobody knows where he is. David has ghosted the people of Israel. Where, where's the shepherd boy? I, he, he was doing such a good job killing all the enemies. Where did he go? Oh, he's with the Philistines and he's killing the enemies of God from behind enemy lines. All of these people represented God's enemies, even to the land of Egypt. And we're reminded as Egypt is spoken of as the enemies of God. But notice David is described here as making raids. The description of what he's doing is strategically barbaric. And he's described here as striking the land. This was the land God had promised. And yet David is found striking it, almost like he's doing harm to the land. 
And then notice verse 9, and David would strike the land, and he would leave neither man nor woman alive. These raids are barbaric, killing man and women. And then, <clears throat> but he would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and he would come back to Achish. Now, we've heard of someone who did that before, right? Remember when Saul was told to go wipe out the Amalekites? And what did he do? He destroyed the land, wiped out the people. But what did he do with the cattle? And what did he do with Agag? He left him alive. And here we're beginning to see David in his heart has the tendency to be like Saul. Wiping these people out. And then bringing back the animals almost as an offering to Achish. And if we allow the Bible to just be read for what it is. And we find ourselves in the story. We are extremely uncomfortable with what he's doing here. Killing all of these people. Massacres. Bringing back the animals. And offering them to this pagan king to make him happy. What is he doing this is the anointed king of Israel. This is God's chosen man. And yet we are looking into his heart here and we are seeing he is a lot like Saul. And yet this is something that we have seen in story after story about David, but we just don't want to talk about it. Remember when he cut Saul's robe and David goes off to himself and says, why in the world did I do that? He, David feels in his heart as he cut Saul's robe that he had lashed out in anger. That he was uncontrolled in that moment. And he should not even have done that. We, we see in the story about Nabal where David is rushing to this farmer and he is going to wipe out his land in anger. And we're, we're, we're seeing into the king's heart that he, he, he is, has these sinful tendencies. In last chapter, he was showing mercy, and now we find him as a traitor in enemy territory. And we know what's coming. We know now what David did not even know then, where David is headed. You see, David's sin eventually doesn't come in a vacuum. When David kills Uriah so that he can have Bathsheba in bed, that sin did not come in a vacuum. We see his heart over and over, and God is showing it to us, even though he's not saying anything about it. He is showing to us that David is a wicked man too. David's sinful self, his sin nature, just sort of keeps bubbling up until one day it explodes. And he lashes out to get what he wants. And we're to remember our sin doesn't come in a vacuum either. You realize as you tell yourself you deserve more from people. As you look around your house and you think, why do these people just not do what I want? And you tell yourself that story over and over. You know that sin when you lash out in anger. That sin didn't come in a vacuum. You are telling yourself something you want to hear now and you're going to grasp for it one day. You're going to lash out for it. 
as you scroll through your phone and you see other people that may make you happier than the people in your life, as you see other family situations that, that, that you long for, that unfaithfulness that's coming will not come in a vacuum. You see it bubbling up in your heart all the time. The question is, what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? Are you serving the pagan king in your heart? Or are you seeking to destroy it? Are you seeking to kill it? The prayerless anxiety that you have over your finances, it's there right now. And the day that you write down on that document and you talk about your income and you know it's not true, so you can get better tax break deductions, when you write that down, that lie, it, it didn't come out of nowhere. You, you've been telling yourself that for months as you're racked with anxiety. And, and we look into David's life and when we see the big sin, the big sin is coming. And we see David looking out from his palace and he sees a woman he wants and he does whatever he wants to have her. And we think, where in the world did that come from? Well, no, God has been showing us all along where it comes from. David is a sinner, just like you and I. And our sin doesn't come in a vacuum. It doesn't come out of nowhere. And we see that in the text as we continue. It only gets worse for David. Notice verse 10. And when Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? Now, the people that David has been wiping out, they were also extreme enemies to the Philistines. And so if David had just been honest at this point, if he would have just told the king what he had been doing, he would have probably been praised in the land. But notice what he says. Against Negeb, against Judah, against Negeb and the Jeremites, against the Negeb and the Canaanites. And David begins to list Israelites. He begins to list the people of God. When the king says, who have you been raiding? He doesn't say, your enemies, O king. He says, Israelites, your enemies, O king. In verse 11, and David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And David begins to lie. And to cover up his lie, he has to kill more people. There, there wasn't social media. It, 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 he could have gotten away with this simply by wiping everybody out. I'm not, I'm not killing the, your, your, I'm not, I'm killing the Israelites. I, I, I'm doing you a favor, O king. And so the king would never think about it, so he wipes everyone out. And notice the word, it says, such was his custom. Now that word there could be translated justice. David thought this was justice. He thought he was doing the right thing. And this is what he does. He's covering up his sin by killing more people. And we see his heart and we see his lies just spiraling out of control. All of the good here David is doing. We might look in and we say, David is wiping out Israel's enemies. He's destroying the Malachites. He's destroying all of these enemies of God. That is a good thing. But we see he's lying about it. 
We see he's very barbaric about it. And we see here in all of this, David is looking out for himself. Even though he is purging the land God has promised Israel, he is purging it of the enemies of God. He's still doing it for selfish reasons. And he's lying about it to protect himself. And how often do we do that? How many good things in your life do you do for you? Just to protect you. Just to make yourself look better. And then you cover it up by making yourself look better. And then you have to make yourself look better. And then you have to make yourself look better. How often do you get into those situations that David is in? See, some of you are here today and you say, think about all the good that I've done today. I got here early. I brought my jambalaya. I parked cars. I've served coffee. I, we're even going to have our BFG today. We're so spiritual. Y'all said don't have BFGs. We're going to have BFGs because I'm such a BF, good BFG leader. That's what we're going to do today. I don't think anybody did that. But you think about all the good things you're doing, and then you have to ask, why am I doing these things? And, and some of you say, well, that's just the last season of my life. I've been serving the church this way for years I mean, go look at my Facebook page. You can see all of the posts of the books that I've read. You've seen all the mission trips that I've been on. And then go to my Instagram account, and you can see all of the selfies of the legions of people that I've discipled over the years. Look at all the good I'm doing. And the question for us today, yeah, are you serving the Lord, but offering such service up as an offering to the pagan king in the mirror? It's really just about you. And it's just about David here. He's doing something we would say, that's good. The enemies of God need to be wiped out. This is a brilliant strategy, David. You're lying to the, the Philistine king. I mean, who needs to tell him the truth anyway? This is all good. But we see David is protecting himself as he makes an offering to Achish. And in verse 12, Achish trusted David. Brilliant, right? He's earned trust with him. Raiding the lands, lying and now he's earned his trust. And notice what Achish says about David. He has made himself an utter stench to the people of Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Who does Achish think is in control of this whole thing? Not David, but himself. I've got him just where I want him. He, he's beholden to me. And there's some truth in that. But think about David earlier. Folks in Israel are, are talking about Saul and they're saying Saul has killed thousands and thousands and thousands of Philistines. He's killed thousands of people and they're singing songs about it. But then here comes the Johnny come lately warrior David, the little shepherd boy. Oh, Saul's killed thousands of people. David has killed tens of thousands of Philistines. He has wiped out tens of thousands of the enemies of God. David is our hero. People are lining the streets. Trumpets are playing. David, here comes David. Here comes David. Forget about Saul. But now, in Achash's mind, David is an utter stench. He's literally refuse to the people of God. And he will serve me from now on. Look at verse 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war. And who are they going to fight? They're going to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand, 
You and your men are to go out with me in the army. And we're to think, what in the world has happened? The man who is going to deliver Israel all of a sudden is going to fight against Israel. And Achish has got him right where he wants him. David, David is in a bind here. What is David going to do? And we think David's going to say, no, my allegiance is to my people. But notice what David said to Achish. Very well. You shall know what your servant can do. He's willing and ready to go to war with the Philistines. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. How did David begin? As Saul's bodyguard. And here, he, he is this pagan king's right-hand man. And he is going to go wipe out the Israelites. And then here in verse 1, the rest of the chapter is about something totally different that we'll talk about next week. But it just leaves us hanging. What is David going to do? This is almost sitcom-like. This is where you get to the end of the show, and it's to be continued, and it's dun-dun-dun-dun. And it zooms in on David's eyes. I have just made allegiance with a pagan king. What am I going to do? And he's caught. He's got to choose what he's going to do. Will he fight with the Philistines and be uncovered as a traitor to Israel? Or will he turn coat with, and fight with Israel and be uncovered with Achish? Find out in two weeks. Because next week is a different story. What, what's going to happen? And we see how far David has gotten in sin. And, and if you're just honest, you say, it ain't supposed to be this way. This was not, we're not supposed to know this about David. And a lot of preachers and a lot of commentators come to this passage and they do exegetical gymnastics to try to cover David's sin up. Let's just let the Bible say what it says. David is a sinner. And what's even more eerie about this whole passage is that it is a godless chapter. And what I mean by that is God never says a word. There's no prophet. Think about all the times when Saul sins. Think about all the times when Saul lacks faith. Think about the time when Saul protects the enemies of God. Think about the time when Saul lies. Think about the time when Saul raids people. Think about the time when Saul does not obey the command of the Lord, which we'll hear about again next chapter. What does God do? He sends the prophet Samuel. And Samuel, Samuel stands before Saul and says, you're wrong. Samuel even brings forth the pagan king and hacks him to pieces. Agag is hacked to pieces before the people of God. But here there's no prophet. It's almost as if God is showing us this about David and saying, no comment. I want you to see this man for who he is. And I want you to remember, unlike Achish, you can't put your trust in David. You can't put your hope in David. A man who lacks faith, aligns with the pagan king, he raids and kills, and there's no prophet there. And Achish is reminding us it is foolish to trust in David because he's a liar and he's a sinner. David betrays the promises of God to serve the enemies of God. And when we hear that, we're reminded that there is only one good king. 
There is only one good king who is good inside and out. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus is betrayed as an enemy of God to fulfill the promises of God. You see, David serves himself because he has forgotten who he is. David goes out into the wilderness. He goes into the Philistine land and he forgets who he is. He is God's anointed king. He has the promises of God. Look at all God has done for me. But when Jesus walks out into the wilderness and he stares the serpent down, he stares the pagan king behind the pagan king down, he doesn't forget who he is. The pagan king says, you're hungry. You know, make yourself some bread. And Jesus doesn't forget the promises of God, but speaks the promises of God to himself. And he says, man doesn't live on bread alone. I don't need your bread, Satan. What, what, what did Satan do to Jesus? He took him up and he said, look at all this land I could give you. Look at all this land you can make your kingdom. And, and Jesus says, I don't need your land. I'm the anointed king of God. I, I, I will rule and reign forever. And Jesus doesn't forget who he is. And Satan says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, if you are the king of God, the Philistine king is saying to David, if you are the king of God, if you are the son of God, and David has forgotten here who he is. But Jesus doesn't. And so Jesus doesn't lead us out to serve pagan kings, but he delivers us from one. And we're so uncomfortable with the story of David. Because we want someone to be better than me. We want someone to not act the way I would act if I was in that situation. And he's David. He, he's a man after God's own heart. He wrote the Psalms. He, he's the pretty shepherd, heart-playing king of Israel with long flowing hair, this great warrior that we have in our minds. This can't be David. And so often we say, this can't be me. But what God is doing here is he's given us a picture of our hearts. He's given us a picture of who we are. He, he, he's showing us what we are capable of. And, and you may be here today and you are struggling with sin. You, you look at your life, and maybe there's that one big sin like David. Like David's sin that just sticks out in your mind. Maybe it was a failed relationship. Maybe it was one night where you made the decision to do something you knew was wrong, and you did it anyway because of lust, because of greed, because of what was in your heart. And it just, it is the logo of your sin. When someone talks to you about being a sinner, that thing comes to your mind. And you're struggling with it. You can't get it out of your head. Or, or maybe it's just sin after sin after sin after sin. And you come in here today and, and there's this constant struggle with sin. Well, I don't... My advice to you today is not to look back to a time when there was no sin. Like we so often do with our heroes. Like we so often do with David. Just remember the good old days with David. Just remember the time before the sin. What he's saying to us is David has always been a sinner. 
And what he's saying to you, the big, the little sins, is you have always been a sinner. And so my advice to you, my, 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 my plead with you today is not to look back to a better day because as sick and twisted as your sin has ever been, there is a far more worse day in your past. The worst sin that you have ever committed, there is an even worse sin that is displayed for you at Calvary. A scene that should make you nauseous as you see the Son of God suffocating on his own blood. And you look at the cross and you say, that's what my sin did. God has clearly displayed my sin. You see, the cross is the culmination of a story of a failed hero. The cross is where all our sin goes to rest. We can't tell our story and bypass the cross that displays what our sin cost, the sinless Son of God, what our sin did to God's Son. And we stand before the cross and we say, I can't save myself because I deserve to be there. And yet that's our only hope. The cross is the culmination and display of a story of a failed hero, and that failed hero is you. And your hope betrays you as you see your sin betray Jesus. But I want to plead with you today, don't be scared to gaze into the gut punch sickening images of who you are crucified in Jesus. Because your hope is not to look back for a time before your fall. Your hope is to look back at your fall at the cross. Let's pray.